Welcome to Unreconstructed, brought to you by confederateshop.com. Here's your host, Matt Miller. Welcome to the Unreconstructed podcast. Today I am going to be speaking with John Vinson, who is the president of the AIC Foundation, which stands for American Immigration Control Foundation. He's also the author of various books, including one of my favorites, Defend Dixie. He is also a speaker and a fellow compatriot in the cause for Southern independence. John, thank you for being on the Unreconstructed podcast. My pleasure. Okay, and let's begin with the topic of Abraham Lincoln, and today we are going to be covering a few different things we're going to talk about his Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, we're going to examine his Christianity and spiritual life. We're also going to look at some of the crimes that he committed against the South, his beliefs on race, recolonization of blacks, and his connection to cultural Marxism. So let's begin. When you hear the name Abraham Lincoln, what is what comes to your mind? What comes to most people's minds when they hear Abraham Lincoln today? Well, we've been programmed to think that this man was virtually the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, that image has been tarnished a little bit in recent years, but still, I would say among conservatives, the idea is, is that uh, Lincoln was this uh, almost Christ-like figure, a man of the highest integrity, who uh, stopped the evil Southerners from tearing apart uh, this wonderful union, uh, and that uh, he deserves the highest uh, respect and regard. Um, I'll have one, I'll make one comment about this. Uh, one of his close friends said after he, not too long after he died, that uh, the image of Lincoln being uh, created now has nothing in common with the man I knew. People, uh, people have put him on a pedestal uh, right next to George Washington, and even if I might say Jesus Christ, it seems. I know growing up in a, uh, in a small Christian school, uh, Lincoln was revered, like I said, almost like Jesus. I mean, you know, he was the American. So we've all kind of been programmed to believe that he was this, uh, that he was this just great figure for, for American values and American principles. But if you really look at the truth and the facts, I mean, there, there's a lot of evidence that says otherwise. I mean, this man was uh, very questionable in a lot of his dealings prior to becoming president with his jobs dealing with the, uh, with the railroad. I don't want to get off on too much of a rabbit trail, but to go back to his Christianity, that was a, that was a, a big thing that most conservatives American conservatives identify with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, do you know? Do you know about his Christianity, or was was Lincoln was Lincoln a Christian, in your opinion? Well, I know about uh, his lack thereof. Uh, his uh, law partner said that uh, Lincoln mocked Christianity; that he would go to church for the purpose of coming out and mimicking the preacher and making fun of what the preacher said. He said that uh, he was. A rank infidel, but he realized uh, that uh, to advance himself politically, he couldn't be too open about this. I mean, back then, I mean, America was a, much, was a very strongly Christian country, um, 
so he uh, would use religious language. Um, about the only time I can I've, I've read about where he actually stated uh, more or less his views on religion was in a handbill that he put out during a campaign, and his opponent for uh, Congress and his opponent. Um, said that Lincoln was an infidel and an atheist. And so in this handbill, uh, Lincoln uh, stated that um, he was not an enemy of Christianity. He did not uh, look down on the Christian faith. He went on and on in this vein, but it was so interesting that he never said, I am a Christian. He did not make that statement. Mm. Yeah, I I believe, from what I've read, that in in his speeches where he references God or Jesus or Christian values, uh, he's doing so simply for political reasons because he's a, a typical slimy politician. And, you know, he was the definition of a slimy politician, in my opinion, back then. And so he, he spoke of Christian values when it was uh, convenient for him and his, his audience. Yeah, he was completely a man of expediency. He was a pragmatist. As I've read about his life, it seems to me the only thing that is really consistent in his life was his uh, work on behalf of the moneyed interest. I mean, that's something he did consistently throughout his life. Getting back to uh, his expressions of faith, I saw this article about um, Hitler, and it um, talked about how Hitler often referred to uh, how he was uh, following the plan of God Almighty. I mean, Hitler made mm-hmm. many of these references, but... I mean, we don't take those seriously, so why should we take some of Lincoln's statements seriously? I mean, right. I um, mean, the, the proof is in the pudding, too. Look at, uh, look at Abraham Lincoln's actions. Look, look at his total war policy against the South. Uh, look at uh, when, when certain specific generals were reprimanded for, uh, for their war crimes. In some cases, Lincoln reinstated them, and I'm going to reference a specific name, uh, General Turchin. He was a Russian officer serving in the Federal Army, and it was uh, he, he got reprimanded for his, his barbaric acts in Athens, Alabama, and uh, someone wrote him up, and then uh, it got to the War Department and went by Lincoln's desk, and Lincoln said, I'm going to reinstate this man. So, you know, his character, just with the total war policy, he knew everything, all of the war crimes that were going on against civilians, um, against Confederate prisoners in the prison camps. Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, I don't think that means that a Christian has to be a pacifist, but it doesn't mean that a Christian should try to avoid a conflict, particularly war, if at all possible. And Lincoln could have done that. He could have allowed this, uh, the Deep South states to pull out of the Union, let them go, and right. <laughs> we could have avoided war. And, Precisely. And, we just got done with date of when he was murdered, and it and and I posted something on our social media page. It was John Wilkes Booth Appreciation Day, and I don't want to get too far off of subject. You know, I've had many people, you know, say, "Well, it wasn't really a good thing that that Lincoln that Lincoln got killed because he would have been uh, he would have been easier on the South during Reconstruction." The reason why I said that was, you know, Lincoln. In his, in his acts, he could have avoided war. He could have avoided this entire horrendous war that happened. He could have avoided it, but he didn't. And so the way I see it, on Lincoln's shoulders are, 
you know, 600,000 plus American lives that he's responsible for. Whereas John Wilkes Booth has, you know, has one on his shoulders and that's the killing of Lincoln. And I say that because a lot of people got upset that I said, it's John Wilkes Booth Appreciation Day, you know, and, and people thought that it wasn't good. And the main point they had was they said, well, Lincoln would have been easier on the South. So what do you think, John? Do you think Lincoln would have been easier on the South during Reconstruction? Actually, I think there is some truth to that, because uh, Lincoln, uh, as I've said, was not a principled man. He was a pragmatist. And the main thing he was interested in was serving the muddied interests uh, of the North. And uh, I think if he had been around during Reconstruction, it wouldn't have been so harsh, because he would have wanted to brought the South back into the country quickly so that uh, the Northern interests could have kept their uh, hegemony without disruption. Uh, but to say, you know, we should um, think he was a good man because he would have gone easier on the South is like uh, a criminal saying, uh, well, you know, I, I stole your uh, wallet. You know, you shouldn't think badly of me because I could have taken out my uh, club and beaten you senseless too, but I didn't do that, so I'm actually <laughs> not a bad person. Yeah, I uh, I do kind of lean more towards towards Lincoln would have maybe been a little more easy on the South. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't appreciate John Wilkes Booth and his and his fervor and what he was doing and his anger and why he was doing it. Um, but I also thought about something else. You know, who uh, who took the place of Lincoln after he died? It was Andrew Johnson, and and Johnson was he was a Democrat. And so I said to myself the other day when I was thinking of the on the subject, I said, well. You know, if, if Lincoln, the, the Republican that started the war, if, if, if he would have been easy on the South, why not, this, why not this Democrat that took his place? I mean, this is a Democrat, right? I mean, Southerners were Democrats. Why wasn't Andrew Johnson easy on the South during Reconstruction? You know, it just got me thinking that there were, there were other players in, in the federal government that didn't want the South to, to get back on her feet. Johnson... Uh did want to go easier on the South. I mean, he was afforded by the radicals. Um, these radicals, in contrast to Lincoln, uh, just had this crazed ideological zeal and, uh, with the idea that the South was the devil incarnate and they wanted to punish Southerners as much as possible. And this, again, went against the uh, interest of the Northern moneyed interest. They didn't want the, the South to be destroyed completely and turn, turned into a wasteland, which I think some of these radicals, like Thaddeus Stevens, really wanted to do. Well, I know that there were certain generals that, uh, one in particular, that said, you know, they needed to be driven like swine to the sea, and the, the earth needed to be salted. I believe that was Sher Sheridan? Was that Sheridan or, or Sherman? Well, I don't know, but it sounds like something he would say. <laughs> yeah. He's also attributed to the statement that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. I don't know whether he said that or not, but people would attribute that to him. It's interesting, though, uh, Sheraton uh, learned his uh, genocidal skills against the Indians by practicing them first against uh, Southerners. Right. Uh, you know, he laid waste to the Shenandoah Valley, made war against civilians. I mean, there was no real military necessity for doing this. I mean, most of the people in the Shenandoah Valley weren't uh, engaged in guerrilla warfare or providing goods and services to the Confederate Army. It was just a, an action of pure hatred and spite. Right. This goes back uh, to the whole issue of why did the war happen? Why did the South pull out? My contention is that uh, as 
Southerners simply didn't want to be in a union with people who basically hated them, who meant them ill, economically, politically. I mean, they uh, saw how a lot of Northern opinion uh, lionized uh, John Brown and called him the second coming of Christ for trying to start a slave insurrection in the Southern states. And all the Southerners said, why should we be in a union with people like this? I mean, when I want to be in a union with a wife if I discovered that she was trying to poison me? The, union, the word union is just an abstraction. Uh, it has to be rooted in the realities of a relationship. I mean, is it a fruitful, beneficial union, or is it a destructive union? Right. Um, and it seems clear as day to me, especially if you read documents such as the Declaration of Independence, that this was our founder's idea of freedom and liberty, that man uh, could come together with one another and decide what was best for their future. And that's what they were determining to do within their state and within their, their borders. Um, and and I'm going to echo this point, and I've said this in papers that I've written and my father has written. And, um, you know, in parts of New England, prior to the 1850s, in the early 1800s, threatened secession on, multi secession on multiple occasions. And it was never denied them. Uh, anyway, That's right, exactly. Uh, what I find so uh, infuriating is the way how uh, some of the um, revisionist historians are saying that Robert E. Lee was a traitor. He, he wasn't a traitor if secession was legal, and secession was legal. It was the understanding of all the parties at that time. The states were sovereign. Uh, in the Treaty of Paris with uh, Great Britain after the American Revolution, each state signed uh, its separate uh, peace treaty with Britain so that affirms that they were mm -hmm. sovereign entities. Right. I mean... There's, the, uh, there's plenty more evidence, not only that, when the uh, when specific states ratified uh, the Constitution in their documentation. I know Virginia, I think New York, Rhode Island, uh, Texas, all made mention that they were sovereign. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, if this doesn't work out, then we reserve the right to remove ourselves. And, yes, that's, a, that's yeah. what I was going to say, exactly. Uh, and the other states agreed to the stipulation, so that was the consensus viewpoint. So so taking that, uh, secession is legal, the states are allowed to do that, and they claim that Robert E. Lee is a traitor, but who's the real traitor? Abraham Lincoln, I'm, I'm on two counts. One, he violated the spirit of the American Revolution by... Uh, imposing um, force on entities that didn't want to be part of country. Also, in the Constitution, it defines uh, treason as, quote, waging war against the states of the United States, which is precisely what Lincoln did. This is why the upper tier of southern states pulled out of the Union. It had absolutely nothing to do with slavery. Right. Uh, Virginia wanted to make, stay in the Union. Right, she held. But, there were multiple votes for secession. Voted to remain in the union with, with the first vote, and, and the second one decided to withdraw because of Lincoln. Right, because of his acts. James Madison, uh, you know, father of the Constitution, said it was inconceivable that uh, the federal government would use force against states. Even Alexander Hamilton said the same thing. I mean, he was a proponent of consolidation. 
Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas were outraged uh, by what Lincoln did, acting as a dictator. So Lincoln wanted to, quote, save the Union. And I know that congressional record makes uh, makes this claim, too. You know, and I'm, I paraphrase, you know, not in the conquest of subjugation or to free the slaves or anything else, but to preserve the Union. What was he saying? He was saying he wanted to save the Union. But why was this Union so precious? I mean, wh- what... Well, it was uh, precious to the Northern business interest. Um, uh, there's a very uh, fascinating book written by a historian named Charles Adams titled When in the Course of Human Events. And Adams shows how um, in the beginning of the secession crisis, uh, there was a lot of sentiment in the North uh, for letting the South go. In fact, there are a majority of editorials in northern newspapers uh, uh, said that uh, either it was uh, legal for the South to leave or that we should just let them go anyway. Adam shows that as time went on, the northern business interests started realizing that the South was allowed to set up a free trade situation, it would damage them very, very much economically. It was at that point that northern opinion began shifting and pressure was put on Lincoln to be more belligerent toward the South. In other words, it wasn't uh, you know some noble aim you know to free the slaves or anything like that. Lincoln said that his purpose was not freeing the slaves. I mean, why can't we accept his statement? Of, in a letter to Horace Greeley, uh, he, he said, you know, my aim is to preserve the Union, not to free the slaves. I think he, may, he repeated that same statement in his first inaugural address. So, I mean, the aim for the North in the beginning was simply to preserve its economic power. As the war went on, it became more and more obvious that this was just a, a war of subjugation and tyranny. Lincoln had to come up with some kind of an, kind of justificate moralistic justification for doing what he was doing. So he uh, hit on the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation. This would uh, justify his cause in the eyes of Europeans and keep them from aiding the South. Mm. At the same time, uh, there were a lot of uh, northern factions that didn't want uh, emancipation. So he had to strike a balance. So what he did was the... Uh, his proclamation, he said that slaves in the areas controlled by the Confederates uh, keep their status, rather would uh, be freed. But uh, he said nothing about freeing the uh, slaves in the areas of the northern control. So it just shows a, it's a perfect example of his uh, duplicity and hypocrisy and scheming. Uh, oh, and yeah. one one other aim of the emancipation was to incite a slave insurrection in the South. I mean, many Europeans and uh, even Northerners made this point. I know, I know, many Northerners were upset when he came out with it and said, "This is this is why we're fighting." You know, there were even some that threatened to go home. From what I've read, the Republican Party was relatively small prior to, or they didn't have they didn't have as much momentum prior to Lincoln. And then when Lincoln was elected, that was kind of their their platform, their fomenting platform of, of where they got their momentum was the subject of slavery, almost like a, a red herring. The book Southern Independence, Why War really outlined that very well, that they used, the Republican Party used the subject of slavery as a red herring issue in order to gain momentum 
gain popularity, uh, get people fired up, especially against the South. And then when Lincoln was really elected, that's when their party really took off. Um, would you agree yeah. with that? Do you know much about that? Oh, yeah. They needed some moral justification to um, obscure that their aim was uh, obtaining power. said, well, you know, we had to have uh, the war to end slavery. Well, slavery ended in many places peacefully before right. the War for Southern Independence. Uh, Russia abolished serfdom, a, a system similar to slavery, peacefully. Why couldn't it have been done here? Uh, the abolitionist movement in the North was not a moderate movement. It was controlled by fanatics who said, we must have immediate emancipation, no regard for the consequences. Uh, and if it be brought about by race war, so be it. I mean, the Southerners are just outraged by this contempt and hostility directed toward them. And it's understand again, it's understandable why they didn't want to, weren't so keen about being in a union with people with this attitude toward them. Let's consider the impact of the war on not on white Southerners. I mean, opinion now is among in trendy circles is well, white Southerners got what they deserve. Well, but what did the war do to the uh, black population? At the end of the war, according to some estimates, several hundred thousand former slaves died of uh, disease and starvation. Right. Everything was disrupted. They weren't able to provide for themselves. Did uh, the Northerners really care about that? Did the abolitionists really care? I mean, they didn't set up the Freedmen's Bureau after mm. the war to provide some aid uh, for the uh, freed slaves, but mainly their attitude was one of indifference. They simply didn't care what happened to the black people. They just wanted to uh, do their virtue signal, signaling Ooh, yeah. and say, look what wonderful people we are. We freed the slaves. I think one thing that was interesting was that the Hampton Roads Conference at the, the end of the war, uh, Lincoln met with Confederate uh, officials you know, to try to negotiate an end to the fighting. And uh, Alexander Stevens asked Lincoln, well, what's to become of all these freed slaves? And Lincoln's reply was, well, they can root hog or die. Yeah. I wanted to bring another point up as well. Some northern politicians uh, voted against recolonizing these blacks in northern communities. And some of these were supposed abolitionists within the government. So my question is, why didn't they want them free around them? So like you said, a lot of virtue signaling, uh, a lot of lies. People have this idea that, number one, that the abolitionists were the same as people who were anti-slavery. I think there is a difference between the two. But that abolitionists weren't, quote, racist. But if you look at the writing of, of Abraham Lincoln and most people back then who were educated, white, white educated folk, they had statements that would be viewed today as extremely racist. And what I'm speaking of specifically is Lincoln's remarks in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in his fourth debate, in, in the first part of his fourth debate. And this was on September 18th, 1858 paraphrasing, and I can, I can read it, I can bring it up and read it, but just to paraphrase, he said, you know, I don't want uh, blacks to intermarry with whites, I don't want them voting or living around each other, and I, I hold that, you know, whites hold the superior position. You know, he has a statement that is so in-your-face, quote, racist, you know, uh, but yet the South and Southerners get demonized for being the real racists. So, I mean, what do you, what do you have to say about that? 
So he, he made those statements, but at the same time, uh, to other audiences, he was uh, expressing sort of liberal egalitarian viewpoints. And one letter stated that it seems that we don't believe that all men are created equal when we talk about uh, Negroes and immigrants. He was talking out of both sides of his mouth, depending on the mm. audience, it seems. I mean, and my thought at the time was, well, what exactly did this man really believe? You know, he said he, in some certain instances, he talked about sending blacks to Africa, but at the same time, at the end of the war, he said that uh, black Union veterans should be able to vote, so apparently he didn't want to send them back. I mean, once again, the only consistency I can find in this man's life was uh, being a front man for wealthy business interests. Well, he is he is almost an, an enigma. We can see his different speeches, and there's a lot of uh, conflicting evidence with with his fact with his statements that he he really did say. I think uh, that we should you know base our judgment of Lincoln on his actions, and I think his actions are very telling. I mean, he can say whatever he wants. He likes blacks. He doesn't like blacks. He wants to send them back. He wants to set them free. He can say all number of things, but what it really comes down to is what do his actions say? I think that there are plenty of actions that really condemn Lincoln for what he did to the South and towards Southerners and towards the blacks after the war because of what he allowed to happen with total war. Here, well, he saved the Union. He saved the Union. Yes, he saved the Union at the price of almost mortally wounding the American Republic, and we're suffering the consequences of this even to this day. Right. Uh, we suffer today from a highly uh, unified government. Really, doesn't have a high regard for um, states' rights and individual and local rule. This is uh, something the, the founding fathers uh, spoke out vehemently against. They call it consolidated government. You know, all, all this uh, conversation we're having is, you know, is about the South, and some people will say, well, you know, things you know, that happened a long, long time ago. Well, the thing is, it's quite relevant to today. We are facing a situation of growing division in this country, growing diversity, as they call it. If you try to have a unitary form of government, all the pressure is just going to build up, and you're going to have an explosion. I think the only way to defuse this is to go back to the principle of states' rights and let localities rule in the way they see fit. Consolidationist view is, well, we've got to have uh, one law that fits all throughout the entire country. Well, there's some parts of the country that favor abortion. Other parts of the country strongly oppose it. Well, the thing is, the recent Supreme Court ruling uh, was a very good thing, I think. It, It puts it back to the states. States can decide you know, what restrictions they want to put on abortion. And again, I think this helps diffuse things. I have a quote by Alexander Stevens that I'm going to pull up because it speaks, it speaks so profoundly of the contest and what was, what was really taking place. Because I have people say the same thing. They say, you know, it's been, it's been well over 100 years, 160 years. Why are you guys still fighting the war? You know, it's over with. Y'all lost. Yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, buddy. Actually, we all lost, and here's why. We, you know, we lost because this empire of a government that we have today, where we pay taxes on our taxes upon taxes, where things are increasingly getting worse, and we police the entire world, and we sacrifice our sons on the altar under the guise of, of American freedom, you know, there's a lot of 
things going on under today. the guise of American, the quote they call exceptionalism, that we have superior values. Uh, it goes back to this idea of abstractions. The Lincoln was willing to uh, cause the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people for this abstraction called union. Today, uh, we our rulers are willing, apparently willing to risk nuclear war over the abstraction of quote democracy in Ukraine. Yes, we need to get back to a more practical understanding of human nature, the real needs of people, the right. real structure of, of society, rather than these, these airy-fairy abstractions. You know how much I love talking about modern politics, but it ties into exactly what we're talking about with Abraham Lincoln and what he started, the snowball down the hill that has gotten so giant in, of what it is today. But I wanted to read this Alexander Stevens quote because he sums up the war really well. He says, The contest was between those who held government to be strictly federal in its character and those who maintained that it was thoroughly national. It was a strife between the principles of federation on one side and centralism or consolidation on the other. So he sums it up as that. And that's what we have today. We have this, uh, this giant leviathan of a federal government that has complete power and control mostly over over the states i mean we're not sovereign today as we were prior to the war but a lot of people a lot of young people don't see the importance of that you know maybe that's because we've kind of grown up in a in a golden era where we're there's not all the hardships that there were a long time ago and we've almost taken things for granted and what's the quote? Tough men create uh, good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. We're in that cycle right now. And you've told me this before. The one way that we can save it is reviving Southern culture. These old principles that our ancestors embodied in every walk of life, their spiritual life, their social life, their work life. And these things that are in Southern culture are precious and they can be, um, they can not only be moved on to the next generation, but they can almost revive what our country has become, right? You've talked about that. And I, I love that yeah. message. I love it. Southern culture uh, is a living thing. It seems to be on life support now, but I hope that it can revive because it has so much to offer in this sick modern world we live in. And Southern culture is always. Uh, focused on practicalities rather than abstractions. Southern culture recognizes, for example, that uh, there are two distinct en entities, male and female, and this uh, understanding seems to be over the heads of our uh, predominant classes now, a march toward the goal of insanity. Southern culture uh, focuses on the importance of family, lineage, gives stability to people, it gives uh, inspiration and encouragement. The statement of uh, Edmund Burke said that uh, people who don't care about their past don't care about uh, their future either. And he said that people who don't have this mindset are, quote, like the flies of summer who breed for a season and die. Society today uh, of people who don't know who they are, or what they are, or where they're going, uh, they are sad people, they self-medicate. Our Southern heritage has an answer for this problem. You know, faith in God, uh, belief in community, family, uh, right. personal obligations. 
I mean, the uh, liberal uh, mentality today is that each person is his own god. That, that, that uh, explains this uh, transgender nonsense. The Bible says male and female, he created mm. them. I mean, it was God Almighty who created two genders, male and female. But the, yes. uh, and the liberal woke mentality is that each person is his own god. And he can decide whatever he wants to be. Right. Well, we're we're finally seeing the seeds that were planted well over 50 years ago g- ago in our universities and schools. We're seeing it finally uh, bloom and blossom and spread like cancer. And I think it goes back even farther than 50 years ago. I think it ties back into Abraham Lincoln himself. And I know a lot of conservatives have no clue about this. They don't understand that Lincoln had ties to Karl Marx himself. They have no clue that Lincoln had given many of those German socialist jobs when they came over here in the Federal Army. They have no clue the ties of Lincoln and communism. I want to talk about that. Mark- I, don't, I don't think Lincoln was a communist. Right, yes, sir. I, 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 did, so I, did, I have read, though, that Karl Marx sent him a, a personal letter uh, extolling his leadership in America. I mean, Karl Marx... Uh, recognized a kindred spirit. You know, I think it's telling about how many of those German socialists were in the uh, were in the Union Army. I think that's telling. I think uh, I think people that were bumping elbows with Lincoln, uh, who who had the, that kind of ideology, I think they did have some influence on him. But as as you said, I don't think that he was an outright you know communist or Marxist or anything like that. And you're talking about uh, immigrants, you know about. Uh... 25% to 30% of the Union Army was made up of immigrants. I read that uh, something like 90,000 northern men uh, fled to Canada rather than uh, serve in the Union Army. Maybe some of those men were just uh, afraid to fight, but I, I suspect that there were some of them who were just decent men who didn't want to fight in a cause like that. And so Lincoln used these immigrants to fill up the ranks. Yeah, I wondered... Uh, in the past, why the uh, Yankee armies were so cruel to Southerners? After all, they were fighting the war, supposedly, to keep the uh, national community together. Well, the fact is that many of those uh, northern soldiers weren't really Americans at all. They were these foreigners who had, you know, some of them were criminal elements, you know, who had no real attachment to the country. They were basically mercenaries. I know the story of some of the Irish immigrants uh, facing their... They're Irish brothers on the battlefield at Fredericksburg. There's that yeah. very moving story. You know, you get off the boat and you fight for for Uncle Sam. But yeah, that's that's one of the uh, one of the benefits that, that Lincoln, the Union, had was you know not only their huge power over manufacturing and uh, navy, and they had the immigrants that were pouring in. So one way that they they had a leg up on on the South. I want to reference a statement by Robert E. Lee at the end of the war, and he said that the Union victory uh, will bring about a situation of despotism at home and aggression abroad. This is exactly what we're experiencing today. This is the legacy of Lincoln. You know, he right. uh, clamped down on civil liberties, and now it seems the Democratic Party wants to clamp down on people's civil liberties. I read this article today that um, authorities uh, are prosecuting this man who made some jokes about Hillary Clinton. More and more, uh, the mentality of the woke left is against freedom of speech. Uh, I talked to a man uh, a few years back who uh, was a graduate of Harvard Law School, and he said that they are 
uh, laying the legal groundwork of arguments to get rid of free speech. Uh, they will outlaw mm. speech they hate, calling it hate speech. So we are moving in the direction of despotism right. now, thanks to the yeah. consolidation of our government. And we are constantly aggressive abroad. Uh, yeah. you know, we provoked this uh, absolutely senseless war with Iraq 20 years ago, based on lies about weapons of mass destruction. And now it seems our uh, rulers want to get us involved in a war with Russia, a situation which could spin out of control and provoke a a nuclear war which would end civilization as we know it. These people are just filled with their ideological zeal, uh, their abstractions about world democracy, world freedom, America the exceptional nation. Uh, I say, you know, we must revive a sense of our southern heritage as a counter to this sort of thing. I think the real conservative value lies in in peace and in, in not, wanting, not wanting these international wars. I think the, the media has such a trance over people that the truth starts coming out later on, and 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 it's like, oh well, that was that was actually true. Those people weren't crazy, uh, but it's so far off from when it happened that nobody seems to care. But uh, I wanted to say one thing about freedom of speech, um, and I don't think it's too too far off to say it's conspiracy. I don't think it is. You know, much of our literature is being published online, held online in in PDFs and whatnot. And like the age of books is really dying out and going away. Like you said, they're clamping down more and more on freedom of speech, which means eventually it's not just what you say out in public and somebody overhears you and can turn you in because you said something that was violent or dangerous or racist or whatever. You know, it'll be online. That, I think that's why it's important to have books. And that's why we we have such a great selection of books. And we're not only publishing or or selling new books, but we're publishing these old books that tell the truth. And one in particular that I wanted to mention about 30 minutes ago in our conversation was the book A Life of Abraham Lincoln by Lamont. And Lamont was his law partner. When we were speaking of Lincoln's Christianity, I think I believe you were lef- referencing his words in, in his book. But I want to say to the listener, we've been talking about Lincoln. If you want to know more about Lincoln, and really what was what his close associate had to say, this is the book to have. And it was published in the late 1800s, and Northerners at the time hated that it was, uh, that it was put out. So get a copy of this before our country really literally starts censoring things online. Have hard copies of this information. John, I really do believe eventually they are going to come after our speech. And maybe people say, oh, that'll never happen, that's crazy. Ask yourself this, listener. Ten years ago, would you have thought that these clowns, these men dressed up as women looking like clowns with makeup all over their face, literally looking like clowns, would be in the White House giving some kind of press conference talk on ABC News and every other major news station? I think ten years ago, if you would say that to somebody else, oh, that would never happen. I, I don't think anything is too far out with the despotism and the tyranny that we're seeing today. And freedom of speech you know, is going to be under attack. There's one principle behind this, the principle of equality. And this is something that uh, Lincoln took from the Declaration of Independence and ran with it. And he made it into, uh, one of the, again, one of these abstractions. 
you know, has no relation to real human beings. And it's the same principle that animates so much of what goes on now. Of course, with liberals, I mean, they, they believe in human equality. They believe that they're they believe that they're morally superior because they believe that all men are equal. But with the, the principle of equality, I mean, I could, the principle has just gotten totally out of bounds and pushing us to the idea that uh, everyone is the same. If they're not the same, they must be made the same. This destroys any idea of uh, achievement or excellence, seeing how uh, the wokesters are even openly attacking the idea of merit and hiring, saying, you know, we've got to have Diversity. Diversity is more important than competence. Well, you know, if I'm on an airplane, I mean, I'd like to think that the air traffic controller on the ground is someone who got in because he had ability, not because of some quota he was filling. Jefferson said there there are natural distinctions among men, and a healthy, sustained society understands this. And a healthy and decent society doesn't encourage envy people toward envy toward people who are, are achievers. Yes, back to, uh, that seems like one of the bedrock cornerstones of Marxist ideology or the cultural Marxism that's being pushed out today. It sounds very sweet. You know, it sounds, you're being very considered. Very just and, and, kind. Yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of the, uh, what BLM did when they came out, um, you know, and all of their rioting and violence and destruction ensued, but that was the bandwagon that everybody and their cousin were jumping on um, because you, you were a good person if you supported this cause. But when you look deeper and you saw, you know, you saw on their literal website, they said, you know, we are neo-Marxists and we are against, we're, we want to destroy the nuclear family. We want to up this kind of absolute equality that you're talking about. Something... The leaders of BLM, you were raking in money and they were spending the money on mansions and other items like that. Shows yeah. how much they believe in equality. <laughs> oh, I want to go back to one thing you said. I, I agree with you completely about the importance of books. You know, with stuff online... You know, everything can be erased online, I suppose, if you have the technology to do it. But books, you know, are much, much harder to destroy. I think uh, one thing all of us should aim toward doing is to create our own personal libraries of uh, significant books uh, so that the day comes when it's, it's very hard to access information. We can still do it that way. Yes, sir, I could. I absolutely agree. Uh, my father and I have accumulated quite the collection. I know many of my online customers have too, with all the books that they've bought. And uh, I'll tell you what, your book, Defend Dixie, both your books, Defend Dixie and Southerner Take Your Stand, are, are really fantastic. I get a lot of comments from people who've read them both, uh, specifically Defend Dixie. And I just want to tell all the listeners that if you have not read these books, these are a must-have. Defend Dixie and Southerner Take Your Stand, you can get both of these on Confederate Shop. Dot com. Yeah, John, you have really written some fantastic books on specifically dealing with Thank Southern you. culture and exactly what we're talking about now. Um, but back to Lincoln. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that, that I really wanted to focus on or zero in on. You know, we had talked about his Christianity. Um, we had talked about the Emancipation Proclamation, his racial views. Um, is there anything else that we can really focus on about specific war crimes or the crimes against the South that were or really he was responsible for. Is there anything that you can think of? 
Well, I think uh, you covered that issue um, when you were talking about General Turchin and how uh, Lincoln reinstated him. I think Lincoln knew what was going on, at least uh, on some level, but he simply didn't care. He wanted to win the war as quickly as possible. The business interests could get back in business. I know that that Lincoln Lincoln was still human, and I wonder if all that was going on and all that he knew that he was responsible for wasn't really burdening his soul. I mean, I know that he was a man that suffered with uh, with depression, and uh, you know he suffered great loss in his life with his family and whatnot. But I, I often wonder if if some of the some of the crimes that were committed against the South. Uh, during the war, really didn't didn't wear on him. Yeah, and, and one thing it, about Lincoln again, though, is one of his friends said it was very very difficult to read the man. Uh, he, he didn't express his views in an open way. I mean, he was just uh, always hiding things, very uh, placitous. Uh, so, he, yeah, he's, he's a very difficult person to read that way. Well, like I said before, I think we ought to. We ought to judge the man not by the words that he said so much as his actions. And I think his actions speak volumes, especially behind closed doors. And what he wrote to, you know, the people that he was close to in personal correspondence and and the decisions that he made. All of this can be found in many research books. You know, Lincoln and the subject of Lincoln is one of the... One of the subjects that makes people think that there is more to the war between the states than what they were taught. And I've had, you know, conversations uh, with younger people that I've just met, maybe at a get-together or some kind of function, and we'll get to talk about the war because of what I do for um, a living. And they'll often mention Lincoln, and I'll, I'll make a statement that he said, and they, they say, well, that just can't be true. He couldn't have said that, you know. And then I'll show it to them, and then they say, "Well, how come my professor didn't tell me that?" I said, "Well, what else are they trying? What else are they hiding?" Yeah. Well, what yeah. else did your professor not tell you? And and that's what I want people to understand. I, maybe I should have began this podcast on a lighter note because I know that Lincoln is very sacred and special to a lot of people, um, because of how we were raised. And maybe some people out there really revere the man to think that he is this this hero and idol, but I want to say there is a mountain of evidence that says otherwise, and it's from his his closest peers. It's from people that worked with him and beside him and around him, um, and it's documents that show his actions and what he did. And I just want to mention a few books to our listeners. I had said before, Life of Abraham Lincoln by Lamont, the books by Thomas D. Lorenzo, uh, The Real Lincoln and Lincoln Unmasked are two fantastic, very easy to understand the real Lincoln or to know the real Lincoln. There's also a niche subject that's completely separate from what we were talking about today with his political career and such with, uh, with his upbringing and his uh, questions on, on was his father really a Lincoln? Uh, so we have a book called Rebirthing Lincoln that really examines that, what people would call, quote, conspiracy. Uh, but it's a pretty interesting read, and I won't get into it. That's for a different day, for a different podcast. I think we really covered we covered a lot on Lincoln, and I just want folks to know that do your own research and look deeper than just the surface level of what's being told. I, I want to say, too, we began this this podcast by talking about Lincoln's Christianity. Who knows? Lincoln on his deathbed might have repented to God, asked forgiveness, and you know accepted the, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know. 
So we're not trying to you know, condemn him to hell necessarily on this podcast, but we're just trying to question some of his actions because his actions had some very, very severe consequences, consequences of which have echoed into our generation today about the fundamental, very much so, yeah. the fundamental principles of what our constitutional republic is supposed to be and what it's not, what it should be today. John, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, just uh, one more thing. I think a, a lot of Southerners uh, had sense about Lincoln because it was part of the uh, unspoken bargain made, oh, maybe in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, this bargain consisted of um, the idea that um, it was good that the North won, but uh, at the same time, Southerners deserved respect for fighting for what they believed in, and they fought very bravely and nobly. And so on this basis, uh, we can come together, and part of the deal was that we will regard Lincoln as we regard Robert E. Lee as a great man. We can also regard Lincoln as a great man, you know, with the idea, too, that maybe he wouldn't have been as bad during Reconstruction as the radicals were. Well, this agreement is just broken down completely. I mean, the purpose of it was to bring reconciliation between North and South. And you had, you know, Union and Confederate veterans getting together, shaking hands with one another. Uh, uh, in other words, it was uh, something to promote goodwill. Well, again, this is just broken down completely because the radicals uh, want to demonize the South completely and revive the radical abolitionist viewpoint that... Uh, Southerners were just devils incarnate. Well, since the agreement is broken down, we don't have to honor the commitment to respect Lincoln anymore. I think we need to understand the situation now and act accordingly. That is a very good point that I haven't thought about. That is, uh, well, thank you, John, uh, very much for, for being on the Unreconstructed podcast, and I hope that we can do another one of these episodes uh, soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care.